Hello, and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. In October this year, the United Nations Convention on Biological Diversity will have its 15th COP meeting, at which a new global biodiversity framework will hopefully be adopted. In advance of that, G7 nations will gather in the UK, and the seven national science academies from the G7 nations have drafted a joint statement on biodiversity and how the G7 can take action to begin to halt biodiversity decline. With me to discuss this is Professor Yadvinda Mali, Professor of Ecosystem Science at the University of Oxford. Professor Mali, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Before we start discussing solutions, can we start by describing the scale of the problem? Where are we globally in terms of biodiversity loss? Well, the state of biodiversity globally is, is pretty poor at the moment. What we're seeing are ongoing species extinctions, but I think more important than actual loss of species is the simple decline of biodiversity. So things aren't necessarily going extinct everywhere, but there's much less range of ecosystems, natural habitats, semi-natural habitats, and species around in the world. And uh, there's much talk about this being potentially a major extinction event that's comparable to the extinction events, such as the, the one that caused the demise of the dinosaurs. And why it matters is not so much just for the species themselves, but also much of the fabric of the world depends on the richness of the biodiversity of this planet. And as we start tearing apart the biodiversity, there's increasing concern that things such as our food systems, our climate systems, the, the sheer fabric of the world is starting to wear away. And that could be potentially very dangerous. So you've led on, on behalf of the Royal Society in the United Kingdom, producing a statement on biodiversity from the National Science Academies of the G7 nations in advance of the G7 meetings this summer. The first recommendation in that statement is about developing new processes for valuing and accounting for biodiversity. What did you have in mind? What, what does this look like in practice? Okay. Firstly, uh, I'd say I'd like to mention why we why it was important to get this statement of the G7. Uh, the G7 is about 10% of the world's population, but it's about 40% of the world's consumption. So getting action within the G7 nations alone is, is important in itself as a substantial contribution towards sustainability. But also the G7 have a major responsibility in terms of the, the historical environmental footprint, the amount of carbon emissions, the atmosphere, the historic biodiversity loss. So I think there's a moral responsibility as well for the G7 to show leadership. And also as the wealthiest uh, nations on earth, uh, the potential for them to support a wider range of activities across the world's nations is quite substantial. So this is why I think this particular pitch to the G7 is important in terms of the overall range of strategies around this super year for biodiversity as, as 2021 is now being called uh, and for climate change as well. So in terms of uh, why we, we thought, thought it's important to think about valuation of biodiversity and new ways of thinking about valuation, firstly, there's an increasing realization that the ex existing model is broken. Uh, it's an economic model that has, in some senses, served us well for a number of centuries. And we've seen economic growth. We've seen a lot of benefits from that in terms of reduction in poverty, reduction of deprivation. So, a lot of many people around the world has undoubtedly improved under the current economic model. But the problem is that this model is running up against fundamental barriers. And the, the biggest barrier is that it's 
the recognition that the planet is finite and that infinite growth, continuous resource exploitation on a finite planet cannot continue indefinitely. And so fundamental re-evaluation of this model is needed. And what needs to be done broadly is that nature and the biosphere need to be brought within the economic model. And at the moment, where it's accounted for, if ever, is as an externality. You can draw on nature, you can have costs on nature, and you can bring them in as external factors in your economic growth model. And the model that many influential thinkers have proposed, including the recent Das Gupta review, is one which recognizes that the economy is embedded within society, which is embedded within the biosphere. So it isn't that we simply need to bring nature into our accounting, we have to bring our entire accounting framework within the biosphere, the earth system accounting framework. And this is broadly what we're advocating there. In terms of specific frameworks, there's, there's a number of ideas out there, and I'm not saying that we can narrow down on one, but I think, for example, this idea of inclusive wealth uh, that the Das Gupta Review uh, promoted is certainly promising, where we bring in natural wealth, human wealth, and uh, economic wealth into a single accounting uh, framework. And beyond that, uh, there's a little bit of a caveat there. I think in a part of this can be bringing numbers to the natural world and bringing them into, our, uh, into our accounting. And there are advantages to that. Uh, uh, economic planning is built around numbers. So we need to have numbers in there, whether we're describing the natural capital of a system or other systems. But we also need to be careful there to recognize that this is only a tool, a way of valuing nature, that this bringing numbers into nature doesn't become a worldview. There is a danger that what this is, is an expansion reach of a certain economic way of thinking about the world into other parts of the world, the biosphere. If you can bring it into an accounting system, that's all, that's, that's a sufficient for valuation. And as a, so part of our recognition of value there is to recognize there are many other values to nature, intrinsic value, relational value, how societies relate to nature also need to be thought about, even if you can't put a monetary value on those. That's required for this, uh, to avoid this dangerous option of simply thinking of nature as a balance sheet that we can bring into our financial balance sheets. Yes, I, I can see that, but it does make it more complicated, of course, to bring in financial and non-financial things together, but there are models where that's done for sure. So another recommendation from that uh, statement from the G7 nations, it should be that the G7 should apply integrated earth system thinking to generate cross-sectoral solutions. What, what do you mean by that? And why is that so important? What we mean by uh, integrated earth system thinking is bringing into our planning, not only what was often brought in, which is economic thinking, sometimes some social thinking about livelihoods, etc., uh, but also bringing in consideration of the biosphere and the climate in, into that thinking. And uh, in, in academic research, there are, there are plenty of tools now that enable us to do that. We have earth system models that bring in the biosphere, the carbon cycle, the water cycle. Uh, we have land use models that look at, uh, at the different impacts of different forms of land use. And yet it's still quite rare to incorporate those into planning, as we're planning scenarios for, for example, in the food production or agricultural development or economic development uh, on, on a multi-decadal scale. So just to give a few more specific examples, when we're thinking about uh, food supply and, uh, and uh, uh, how to 
to provide food supply for a population of perhaps around 11 billion by mid-century, we need to think about the impacts of that food system on uh, climate change in terms of carbon emissions, also in terms of uh, biodiversity, in terms of water services. And now we have, we have all the tools available to do that. So it is quite possible to, to do that if you just bring that in, into planning. Another example is around the potential use of nature-based solutions, uh, the biosphere, as one of the strategies to address climate change. So to what extent can we, for example, regrow forests in the UK as a strategy to address climate change? Now, there are many benefits there, but we also need to integrate that into our thinking about food supply uh, and food systems. So, for example, if we just turned primary agricultural land into uh, restored uh, forests, for example, we need to get our food supply from somewhere. We may just be displacing that to sourcing our food from a tropical forest frontier region in Brazil or Indonesia. And the net effect on biodiversity will be negative. But we now have the tools to be able to connect things up uh, and look at that in a joined up way. And that's what we're broadly advocating there. And just to follow up on that, why do you think that we're not already using those tools? Is it a lack of understanding amongst policymakers or is it because many of these things are international and people still plan on a national and regional level? What's holding us back from, from doing this? I think mean, what's holding us back is probably a combination of both factors. I think to some extent, a lot of the thinking in environmental systems research has not translated directly into policy planning. And I think it may be just a lag for these ideas to feed across and a need for those ideas to feed across. And the other one is correct. I think the challenge with many of our environmental concerns is that they're transnational and the policy tends to develop, planning policy tends to be focused on the national level, which works quite well when you think about economic thinking. But when we're thinking about system sustainability, it's those connections that need to be made, made internationally that, that are more, more challenging. And it's a climate change itself that epitomizes the, the challenge there that ultimately we can have national policy, we can have ambitious national targets, but if we haven't got the major emitters or potential emitters of the world on board, ultimately we're not going to solve, solve that problem. And that joined up governance across boundaries is part of the challenge there. No, it definitely is a challenge. And I guess that's one of the uh, reasons to have the COP meeting. Uh, staying on this global side of things, the third and final recommendation from the uh, the G7 statement is about global monitoring. So what, what's needed in this area? Well, our concern there was that, uh, firstly, we, we, we know broadly that biodiversity is in trouble, but our actual data on that is actually quite poor. And it's poor in two ways. One is in the range of biological or ecosystem data. And some, some groups such as mammals or birds are quite well understood, but many of the other types of life that are intrinsic to the nature of life on Earth, the insects, for example, we have very little idea of what's, what's, what's going on there at a, at a regional or, or global level. For example, recently there's been a lot of concern about insect, what's sometimes called the insect apocalypse, this decline of abundance of insects, say, for example, in Europe, that may be linked to intensified agriculture. But actually the data sets are really patchy and really poor. So there's a need to expand our data sets in terms of what they cover and to understand that. Uh, and not only 
in terms of ongoing decline. But when we start putting in interventions to try and recover biodiversity and restore a biodiversity, how will we know when we're being successful, if we're being successful? We need the systems in place to be able to judge that. And the other aspect is geographical. Most of the world's biodiversity is in uh, tropical nations that really struggle to have the capacity to track their overwhelming amount of biodiversity. Uh, so the basic human and data capacity to collect the data and manage those data. And those are areas where the G7 could provide major support in developing that capacity and their ability to monitor biodiversity and to build the databases that enable a global assessment of biodiversity to be done. And how far away from this are we? You know, if the G7 put their mind to it, uh, how long would it take to get this kind of monitoring system up that was obviously it would never be entirely complete, but was reasonably covering uh, the planet in the way you've described? I think it, uh, elements of it could be done quite quickly. The, 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 uh, the skeleton of that is there. there. There are international skeleton frameworks to do this that are poorly resourced. And in particular countries, there's often capacity to do some of this, but simply not the, at the scale that's needed. So it's providing the resources to scale and train up that. So uh, just to give a personal example, a lot of my own work has been around monitoring tropical rainforests uh, over the last few decades, look for evidence of whether they're increasing in biomass and acting as a carbon sink that helps slow down climate change, or whether they're changing in species composition. And we've been doing this with a number of colleagues across the world for decades in the Amazon, uh, in Africa and Southeast Asia, but it's always been piecemeal. It's always been a little piece of money here to do this, little piece of money to do that. And what we really need are the ecological equivalent of the, the International Weather Station Network, where you monitor weather, not because you know what the outcome is going to be in the, in the next year or two, but because in the end, that long-term weather monitoring tell, alerted us to climate change and the impacts of climate change. Can we have ecological weather stations as well? that monitor the state of the biosphere and give us early warnings of when things are going down or whether things are, are improving. No, really interesting. And there's clearly a lot of things that people could do relatively quickly to get some of these things up and running. Now, hopefully the G7 discussions will take on board some of the things that you've talked about, think about actions in the G7. And that will also then feed into the October COP meeting of the UN Convention on Biological Diversity without being a, an expert discussion on, on, on the COP15 process, what kind of things are needed at the kind of UN level, the COP level, in order to sort of turn the tide on, on biodiversity loss? I think uh, at, at the COP for, the, for biodiversity, I think the two elements that are needed, one is a real ramping up in ambition, what's needed in terms of protected areas, for example, and, and a, a clear plan and a pathway to achieve those in terms of biodiversity loss. But I think a parallel part, uh, and, and part of this is again going back to this integrated earth system thinking. Uh, a number of studies recently have shown that even if we increase conservation and protection around the world, it wouldn't be sufficient globally to what's called bend the curve of biodiversity loss. And that to actually bend the curve, we also need to think about the consumption side of resources around the world to have effective tracing of what's been consumed, but also think about things that are sometimes a bit more challenging in the rich world, things like dietary shifts. Can we uh, reduce the amount of meat in our diets, increase the amount of plant-based foods? So it isn't a necessarily saying that everybody needs to be vegan or vegetarian, 
but can the per capita meat consumption reduce? Because a number of studies show that meat has a much larger, on average, has a much larger environmental footprint than, than, than non-meat products. And a lot of these earth system analyses says it's really difficult to provide the high levels of meat consumption for the entire world's population with the growing aspirations, a growing middle class in many countries. And uh, so to really turn the curve, we have to have a look at both things. We have to look at protection of biodiversity on the ground. We also have to look at the consumption side of the equation. Uh, and that's the only way that we're going to be able to try and potentially turn the curve of biodiversity loss. So I'm hopeful that the COP will also look at this consumption side. But I think uh, there's also an equity side there. Because if we're looking at uh, purely biodiversity loss, as I mentioned, most of the biodiversity at threat tends to be in the tropics. And so there could be a range of actions to enhance protection of biodiversity, support biodiversity protection in the tropics. But that doesn't recognize this point that, for example, 40% of consumption is in the G7 nations. And to have an equitable, equitable approach to this, we also need to think about the consumption side and having making space for both the increased consumption that is needed in many parts of the developing world, while also maintaining a viable biosphere. It's interesting what you say, all of these issues to do with consumption, to do with equity, and to do with the fact that where the effect is felt may not be the same as the place where some of the problems are caused, also occur in the debate on climate change. And there is clearly a link between climate change and biodiversity loss. And as we know, as well as the biodiversity COP in October, there is the major climate change COP, which is in the UK in November. To, to what extent is climate change action also crucial for tackling biodiversity loss? How do these two things work together? Well, climate change and biodiversity are intimately coupled. And firstly, up until now, the major cause of biodiversity loss is land use, how we use the land, a food system and other components. But most of the models suggest that under the more middle to pessimistic range of climate change scenarios, climate change itself will become the major cause of biodiversity loss. So if we don't get our handle on the climate change problem, the biodiversity problem will get much, much worse and much more challenging. But conversely, biodiversity and nature as a whole can be an ally in tackling climate change. And it can be an ally in two ways. Firstly, as making some contribution to the mitigation of climate change by acting as a carbon sink and, uh, uh, and contributing there. And secondly, as contributing to adaptation to climate change. So there are many ways that natural ecosystems, for example, forests and uplands that reduce flood risk or or mangroves that reduce the risk from, from extreme weather events, or just simple connectivity in the landscape that enables species to migrate and uh, affect microclimate, or trees in urban landscapes that reduce extreme temperatures. There are many ways that we can work with nature to reduce the impacts of, of, of climate change. And conversely, on the mitigation and the adaptation side, there are substantial funds being made available to either from, from international or governmental sources or from private companies that require climate change mitigation. And many of those funds would greatly increase the amount of resources available for nature conservation, for biodiversity restoration. Having said that, there is one big caveat in all of this uh, that is worth emphasizing, that nature restoration can't be an excuse for tackling the fundamental problem, which is reducing fossil fuel 
emissions to, to near, near zero in, in CO2. And there is a dangerous temptation in that, that often we hear, whether it's governments talking about how much they love trees, or the public or corporations saying, well, we're going to tackle climate change, we're going to be carbon neutral, we're going to plant all these trees, and therefore we can be, be carbon neutral. Or even as individuals, you, know, you may take a flight somewhere and tick that box that says your flight is carbon neutral, and therefore no need to worry about it. But in all those cases, we need to think about the systemic change. Ultimately, the biosphere at the most can contribute around 10 to 20% of the climate change solution in terms of carbon mitigation. Most of the solution has to come, come there, come from fossil fuels. And there would be a danger if the biosphere provides us an excuse for inaction on the fundamental problem. So it should be seen as one tool as the overall strategy rather than as the attractive strategy that everybody likes, likes trees, let's go for trees and not worry about the fundamental problem. No, I can certainly see that danger and you can certainly see in some of the debate that people are not tackling the big issues of, of climate change and they're getting progressively harder to avoid. But let's let's put a positive hat on and uh, as we finish off, let's assume that the G7 discussion go well, that the biodiversity and the climate change COP discussions go well. In your optimistic moments, what could this mean in terms of global biodiversity in, I don't know, the next five years? How could this sort of begin to turn the tide, do you think? Overall, I'm actually quite optimistic by the time we're in. I think there's a, a recognition about the importance of nature and biodiversity that hasn't been there uh, at a systemic level before. Before, nature has been seen as something nice to have, and we all like to preserve the elephant and the tiger, and we want to keep them. But the humanity would do fine if they're, they're largely extinct or just kept in a few little game reserves. But I think for the last five years, I think there's been a transformation in the conversation in how important it is that the, the biosphere is to our integrity of our civilization and of life, life on Earth. And I think that's coming through at a systemic level in some of the discussions that are going on at the international level or the national level. Now, in terms of what we can see on the timescale of the next five years, what I'd like to see are ambitious targets, uh, both at the national level, at the international level, and clear strategies to achieve those targets as well. The transformation itself, I think, is a more of a multi-decadal process. You know, we might see the beginnings of that. And part of that is the lags in the system, the societal lags, but also the natural lags in a system. But I'd be hopeful that we can start seeing the actions in place and the, uh, and the strategies to deliver those actions on a timescale of 10 to 20 years can see something very different in, in the biosphere at the international level, but also at the very local level, the countryside that we see are, around us in the UK are suddenly going from being rather depauperate and depleted in biodiversity to being abundant and, uh, and vibrant once again. Well, that's a fantastic place to leave it. That's all we have time for. But uh, Professor Yedvin Damali, thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. My guest this week was Professor Yadvin Damali, Professor of Ecosystem Services at the University of Oxford. Professor Marley is also a speaker at a webinar being organised by the Foundation on the topic of biodiversity on the 24th of May. Details of how to register for that event, which is free, can be found on our website at www.foundation.org.uk. Also on our website are details of all our other events, our blogs and all previous editions of this podcast. Until the next time, goodbye.